This is the Retail Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on market scale. On that third mega trend, where consumers really have taken over the shopping channel, they're walking into stores a lot more informed. We don't hide from the fact that retail is difficult. You know, every day is a challenge, but that excites the customer. They love that. Hello and welcome to the podcast today, everyone. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Now, COVID-19 has caused huge shifts in consumer behavior, which has necessitated a response from grocery and retail establishments. And joining me to talk about this shift and the impact it has had throughout the industry landscape is Bruce Shirey. He's the Senior Vice President of Business Solutions at Amaryllis. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. Great Great to be here and thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. It's always good to talk to you, Bruce, because you have so much insight in this area. And um, we're going to talk a little bit more about how, how Amaryllis fits into this whole picture and what that looks like here in a little bit. But let's just start off by talking a little bit about that shift in consumer behavior that we have seen. Um, how have you seen behavior shift um, among shoppers during this pandemic? Well, the pandemic was, uh, was a really interesting dynamic, I think, for the entire world and definitely for consumerism because of just the basis of stay-at-home orders to fear uh, companies having to rethink quickly, pivot on their feet to say, how are we going to maintain a, a supply to, to the public? And you know, food is a very important staple in everyone's lives. So it was uh, fascinating to watch these uh, grocery stores that actually made some quick changes and the one that somehow just maybe you know we'll, we'll call it clairvoyant but started this process a year earlier to say we're going to kind of go down that path but not really knowing where it was going to go and how it would be adopted but the pandemic seemed to create an adoption rate that's you know never been seen yeah i, th- I think that's a good thing to, to point out is that this uh is that what the pandemic did probably just a- accelerated a shift that was already occurring to a certain extent but definitely sped up and accelerated that timeline right Right. It created a near immediate shift to online grocery ordering. Yeah. And that, that's something that we've seen uh, quite a bit of is, is that online shift. Do you have any stats or any underlying numbers that kind of uh, illustrate for us this shift that has occurred um, you know, when it comes to consumer behavior and shifting more to that online model? Yeah. I, yes, I do. I uh, actually got to uh, participate on a, a webinar or listen to a webinar particularly centering on grocery online ordering and just the dynamics that occurred, you know, let's just say, you know, let's begin with February of 2020 to the end of May, for example. So that a 90 day snapshot beginning with March, 2020 monthly, monthly online grocery users, they clocked in at 46.9 million people that were doing online ordering 30 days later in April, 2020, the online user base grew by approximately 33% or 62 and a half million users and capping at an additional 17% growth you know, to 73 and a half million users by the end of May. Uh, it's just, just staggering. And then if you kind of look, back a little bit, Instacart uh, two to four year growth plan was actually materialized within two to four weeks between late March and early April of 2020. So that's just staggering in and of itself. Nobody could predict that. And then many of the independent grocery software vendors saw upticks in demand for online software ordering tools and hosting and things to augment a brick retail grocery store to help them with the online transition and their transaction volume just from the software vendors we're seeing a thousand percent in 60 days so some of these companies went on a fast hiring spree just to compensate 
with the increased demand because of the pandemic, people staying home and ordering food online. Wow, that is absolutely incredible. Those numbers are staggering just to see that that massive growth in such a short period of time. And I'm sure that caused strains throughout the, the supply chain. Like you mentioned, companies hiring, um, you know, kind of in, in a very accelerated uh, pace just because just to meet that demand that has occurred. So what kind of effect has that had down the supply chain? One of the pieces that it just put such a severe demand across the entire supply chain, it created shortages and scarcity. And to kind of put it in perspective, six months earlier, in August of 2019, online user activity was, was only measured at 16.1 users. So you think about this, that equates to almost 192% increase in new user ordering activity. Now, that's just because that's coming from the online. You still had people with masks going to the physical locations and buying, you know, staples, food, whatever that all the things that they needed. Right. Yeah. So you kind of had that, that I suppose, double side of the business then where you have online ordering and then you still have people going into the store like a, you know, like you would normally expect. So, so yeah, there, there was certainly a lot of uh, demand that was created by that. So how did grocery stores really respond to that increase in demand? Did it come in the form of investing more in that e-commerce side of the business? And, you know, what did that look like for them specifically? Well, many of the grocery stores, had, they pretty much had a multiple front of challenges to contend with, you know, many of the stores had to quickly rethink how to get out in front of the spike in demand, not only at the physical level, but the online ordering level. They had to begin limiting items, certain items to one or two per person shopping, whether it was online or in person. And some of those items took many, many weeks to be resupplied because the original manufacturers were equally surprised by the surge. And, you know, some people call it hoarding, but it just it created just a disruption across everywhere that some people just got out in front of things and, and at the cause of other people that were suffering because it couldn't have it. So the the whole ecosystem of you think about anywhere from food to cleaning products, for example, just became a shortage. And some things just were not available. And now you're slowly starting to see it come back. Yeah, I think of uh, the great toilet paper shortage of uh, 2020, <laughs> where everyone's posting pictures online of uh, of empty shelves there. Uh, you know, and 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 you're right. It, it took time for that to rebuild after uh, you know it, it to restock after that period of time when there was such a a rush and a shortage on those types of things. So, you know, what kinds of infrastructure changes can be made to online ordering and the delivery process moving forward that you see, Bruce? Just if this pattern continues, and if you know, people that have realized, hey, this is actually a convenient way for me to get groceries uh, if I do the online ordering, uh, you know, whether it's delivery or park in a spot and they bring it out to you, that sort of thing. What kind of infrastructure changes can be made to this process moving forward that'll be beneficial? Well, one of the things about living in the you know, USA is that uh, American people are very innovative and they come up come up with great ideas in a short notice, especially if there's a crisis. And, you know, to kind of an example, many of the major brand grocery stores began providing their own unique versions of an online grocery experience. For example, stores created their own curbside pickup and home delivery. In some cases, stores began to offer pre-order and pickup at home delivery date. But when the shortages got extreme and the supply chain got so disrupted, they kind of got away from the pre-order and pick a date that had it delivered because they couldn't, they couldn't predict it. So they kind of put that on hold, but the order online drive through pickup at a predetermined time or order and they'll tell you 
you know, some time frame, they'll deliver to your home. The key to the long-term success with online grocery ordering would be the integration of loyalty and transactional data. Is mm. that, you know, you, some people have a loyalty card at the grocery store and they, they put in their phone number, it tracks everything that they bought, right? So now they have some loyalty user history of products and services that they're consuming and they tie that with transactional data. Ultimately, to make an online experience even better, they can start to curate bundles to accelerate the consumer online ordering experience. So you're not having to hunt through it. They can say, here's logical bundles of things that people would buy together. So you can go, oh, I'll take that now. And you click, you get the five items. Uh, ultimately, improving the overall user consumer experience will be the key in the long run. Things like simplifying user registration, you have to get the friction out, providing new capabilities, you know, such as uh, the ability to turn off items or SKUs of certain products or services that you would never use. You would never, not in a million years you're going to use this. So why present it? So you should be able to go, I don't want to see that. You should be able to turn them off. And these type of overall improvements and innovation will help eliminate the inherent friction in the process. And, and that's just an evolution. You know, everybody's going to go through it. They're going to figure it out. And the guys that really step back and look at it from a user experience, the consumer experience first, they'll build the, the right model accordingly. Yeah, that, that user experience, that customer experience seems to be the, the golden goose that everybody is is striving for, right? Is improving that overall customer experience. And that's really something that that everybody is striving for on some level. And it's kind of become maybe the the, the buzzword and the, the key thing that everybody's focusing on right now. Yeah, hopefully that you, you, they go from talking about it to actually implementing it and really, you know, if you look at the old days of Procter Gamble, some of these large organizations, they did they did focus groups to market a product. You know, I would think at some point maybe there's a better way to do focus groups on user experience of if I go in to order something through a grocery store, how what's the best way to approach it? And I think that's going to take some time, a little bit of evolution. So, Bruce, you know, when it comes to Amaryllis, you've been a part of this e-commerce revolution since its inception. So, how has your experience in this area really helped inform your thoughts on these current trends? Just from having that that historical context of where the industry has been to where it's going, uh, you know, how how does that help inform your view of this current trend? Well, I've been part of e-commerce evolution ever since the beginning in early '95. You know, all aspects of early e-commerce selling had been changed substantially for the better because it's getting to a point it's will outpace retail, brick and mortar kind of things. But it took approximately 10 to 12 years later after you know the inception of e-commerce and people learning to spell it and embrace it that the, the, the FinTech revolution started to appear and they were bringing new ideas, innovation, better technology, software and processes. In addition, you know, without the technical innovation and improvement made to the internet speeds by, you know, by the telcos, which back then was incredibly lethargic by today's standard, e-commerce most likely would have never evolved so fast. So fast forward today, you take something like what Amaral Willis has, has designed, built their enterprise platform, their technology stack. They're bringing tool sets to people that when they think they want to go into certain markets such as online and they want to bring brick and mortar together and you want to be able to reconcile against this. Amaros built a technology stack that just solves for that. So now people don't have to go build it. They can license this. They can just kind of, so to speak, bolt it up and they can make it theirs. They can white label it. They can do a number of things, but it really improves how they look to approach a marketplace because part of 
let's go back to the online ordering. You didn't think through the user experience. Well, now mm-hmm. I, I didn't think through all the parts in the middle, how I want to make this smoothly work and be able to account for everything from a reconciliation accounting perspective, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I want to talk through that enterprise platform a little bit more and the technology stack that Amaryllis provides. Um, kind of give me more of the details there on on what it's capable of. And um, if you have, uh, you know, an example of, uh, of a successful deployment um, in a nationwide chain or something like that, kind of talk me through some of those details. Well, the platform is, is designed for any type of business operation. It's it's stellar for uh, large organizations that are looking to enter the world of payment facilitation. That's just a different payment model and how it works. And then there's this organizations that say, look, I'm going to go to an endless aisle model. So let's talk about that. So there was a nationwide grocery chain with over 150 plus stores. And they, at some point in their strategic, you know, strategic planning sessions, they decide we're going to go endless aisle. We want to create an online marketplace. How are we going to do that? A part of what they they thought about is they first said, well, we need to get a marketplace. So what they smartly did is they went out, scoured the market and found a software company that builds marketplaces. So they bought it. Once they bought it, they decided how they were going to launch it. Then they started the recruitment process of third-party sellers to come onto this new platform. Mm-hmm. Really, so it quickly became apparent that all these third-party sellers have very different commerce models and requirements and needs because complex commerce is unique to each business. And so they all require the ability to solve for that complex reconciliation down to the SKU level. Additionally, they required numerous other financial proficiencies to manage different reserves, delayed funding requirements, all based on SKU types, which is very important to help mitigate fraud and, and consumer happiness. Furthermore, they needed the ability to manage multiple billing structures, fee splits, payout scheduling. This is a major strong shoot and feature of the Amaryllis technology platform. So this organization, within six months of launching this new marketplace, the, com- the company successfully hit the hockey stick growth curve in sales and new revenues, adding new merchants to the platform. One of the merchants that uh, joined this online marketplace was a high-end patio and lawn furniture company. And they stayed sales increased by a thousand percent over the year prior, just because of this marketplace sandwich in the pandemic a little bit. It just created this whole new dynamic for their business. It was a great challenge for them to solve for. They love it. So the strategic pivot to engage in endless aisles is proving to be a fabulous innovative idea. And it's working quite well, achieving the intended desire you know, to gain new vendors, attract and retain new consumers. And that is really why they sort of said, we're going to go in the aisle. We want to retain customers. We want new ones and we want to be able to retain them, provide that positive experience. So it will be interesting to witness over the next one to two years, the positive infrastructure changes that will be made to the overall online ordering, fulfillment and delivery processes. Now, are there pitfalls that these retailers should be aware of when it comes to going to e-commerce? Have you seen, you know, stories of people trying to launch something and it being unsuccessful? And if so, you know, what are some of the underlying reasons for that, that, that retailers should be aware of? Yeah, success is measured in, in, on many scales. But I think initially a lot of the missteps possibly taken was not really fully thinking through or approaching the solution from the lens of the user. We talked about it a minute ago. It's you have to come at it from a user experience. And then that has to be able to dovetail in your capabilities 
to meet that experience by shifting how you operate at your, your own internal processes and, and, and shifting of cultural norms inside the business to, to meet changing demand. So if you don't do this, there's just too much friction. That creates an abandonment rate that's you know, skyrocks, and then it translates not only into lost sales, more importantly, loss of the customer. You really can't get them back because you didn't really know who they were in the first place. So those are expensive lessons learned that I think that the ones that the difference between the ones that are successful and ones that are not. Right. So uh, another big topic of conversation, another big trend to discuss are third-party sellers, right? So what do you make of retailers like a Walmart bringing in more third-party sellers to try to compete with Amazon on an e-commerce level in that kind of same arena? Is that going to be beneficial for the retail landscape in the long term? Kind of talk me through uh, a little bit more about uh, what you see as far as third-party sellers go. Marketplaces are here to stay. And you know, I think it'd be great if there's more of them. I mean, Amazon is the, the dominant e-commerce mm-hmm. organization, right? They, they rank number one and they, and they control approximately 40% of e-commerce sales. Walmart ranks number two. They recently displaced eBay as number two, but they're, you know, they're down in approximately 5% of the e-commerce space. So if, if you kind of look at the number of sellers are supporting Amazon reports around 1.1 million third-party sellers and Walmart is reporting around 46,000. They recently uh, partnered up with a company called Shopify that does some great e-commerce platform work. And their idea is to bring on an additional 1,200 small to medium businesses into the Walmart online e-commerce platform. So, so they're looking at it and they're saying, well, maybe you know, nobody knows what those 1,200 comprise of. It could be a vertical they're looking at. It. You know, it's, it's hard to say. But you'll see changes and there's going to be other organizations that are, 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 are trying to do this. And this was something you know, funny about the marketplace today is the technology now allows it. But back in the in the late '90s, going into 2000, when e- e-commerce was starting to catch a stride, marketplaces, what everybody was trying to figure out, and it took a long time to perfect this. And Amazon really has done a wonderful job of doing that. They saw for it early, and then they got first mover advantage on that. Mm. And one of the things that I think you mentioned earlier, but you know, if, if you could just expound upon it a little bit, is that that Amaryllis, you know, technology platform. Does that help when it comes to uh, bringing in third-party sellers and having that platform already ready and prepared from a technology perspective? Yeah, yes, because if you're going to do that, we bring that difficult middle piece that they need. They can bring the front-end parts of how they're going to, you know, attract the, the customer, how they're going to get them boarded, and all that, and then that information ultimately lands on our platform. And then all the transactional data and all the ordering data, all that kind of information can flow into our system. And what our system does and what it's it's just excellent for is the reconciliation pieces of all that disparate data. We can take a ton of data and make sense out of that. And then at the end of the day, you kick out the output and and within that structure for reconciling a transaction, for example, a SKU or some product that's being bought, you can set different fee structures up. You can put different constructs around that. And then you can set up within that food chain of delivering that item, you could put splits on that. What that means is you could pay all these different people in line there that participated in providing that service or product mm-hmm. all seamlessly. And then you create instruction sets and those are that instruction is passed off to settlement banks when all said and done is when the merchant themselves closes out for the day, Here's the money that's due them minus, you know, fees. 
that are inherent to the process. Well, we create that whole breakout for them, give them some accounting for that, and then they can distribute funds and they can time it to any way they want to do it. They can set dates, times, amounts. They can hold reserves. They can set up escrows. So we give all these tools that will be very difficult for somebody to go build. Number one, it takes time. Number two, and three is if you don't know, you don't know that and you end up finding out you need it, you're constantly building and you're not growing your business. So it slows down your overall acceleration to some kind of unique go-to-market strategy. So Amaryllis' technology and its platform is there and is designed to accelerate any company's go-to-market strategy. And it just helps them get there because we have all those tools already built. It's a proven platform. There's many companies using it. And it's just, you know, it's a wonderful service that you can give to people and allow online marketplaces to flourish because we're going to take out a big chunk of that development time. Mm. Yeah. I like what you said. Uh, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So if there are things that you're in the dark about, you know, having an expert like Amaryllis that uh, knows the platform and knows exactly what your needs are going to be, uh, that's going to be a beneficial thing just so that you can focus on um, running your business successfully and doing the things that you know how to do well, right? And so, you know, having an expert like Amaryllis provide that technology is certainly uh, something that would be beneficial, you would think. Indeed, because our whole platform was designed at the outset when it was, when, you know, at its inception was to be white labeled. So there's nothing about Amaryllis's technology powering somebody's online marketplace. That's not what we're here for. We're there to power their success. Their success becomes our success. Absolutely. So, Bruce, I, I want to wrap things up today just talking about uh, the changes you foresee coming over the next several years that are going to continue to shift this retail landscape. You know, we've talked about you know what's going on now. Uh, how do you see this moving into the future? You mentioned something earlier about just being interested in seeing how things develop over the next one to two years. What do you see uh, happening over that, that time period? Well, e-commerce is here to stay and it's improving all the time and it's just become you know, I use Amazon again as an example. Me personally, if I am look, thinking about, I'm looking for something, I want to get something. My first inclination is I go to Amazon, look for it before I would ever think of getting in a car and going somewhere. That's just my mm-hmm. that habit and that behavioral training is highly ingrained in me now. You know, let's just kind of stay on the subject of online grocery ordering. Well, that's something new that's going to continue to evolve, and this is where I think fintech gets involved because the the highest users in the online ordering space from the beginning is the 25 to 35 year old age groups. And they're mostly young families. They both work. They don't want to take time to go to the store. They're quite comfortable with ordering and having it delivered and it sort of becomes part of their DNA. So that's, that's a given there. So then you have the other age groups as you move up and let's just take over 60s, for example, there are plenty of people in that age group that are highly technical. They, they have laptops and smartphones and they do all this stuff, but they really have fully engaged in, am I going to buy food that way? You know, there, you still have that, uh, somebody made kind of a joke of, of the, the roulette of tossing around and touching a ripe avocado. <laughs> right. Experiential piece of, seeing what you're buying rather than relying on somebody else to do that for you. So I think certain aspects of if you need toilet paper, paper towels, and all those kind of things, that's a, that's a no-brainer. But you, you slide over to actually the food you're going to consume. It's a little different. I think it's going to be just a little bit of an education and experiential process for people to adapt to. But I think it's all possible. And there's going to be those that are not going to do it. But it, it, in the end of the day, it's it's growing. 
and it's becoming more convenient. The applications that run on your phone are so slick that, you know, you look at, if you ever scroll through that, you know, the food looks great. I mean, bananas look great. So you just click, 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 click. You don't think much about it anymore. You go, I'm on it. It's going to be delivered to me or I'm going to go pick it up. So I think that's just kind of genius. And it's, and that genesis of this whole process over the next two years is really going to get stronger because part of, of I'm in the grocery business, and I'm sure all these guys are well down that path of strategic planning as what if this happened again? What would we do and how do we prevent you know, supply chain interruptions? What can we do to flatten out the process? How can we speed it up? How we can make it a better experience for everybody while they protect their own employees in the process? So yeah. I think that's what we have something to look forward to, watch how these guys engage with that and produce these really nice fluid systems. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see this evolution continue and uh, to watch how these outlets continue to uh, to innovate in this space. And so, Bruce, thank you so much for taking some time to join me today here on the podcast and talking a little bit about these trends that you're seeing and how Amaryllis fits in and, uh, and really enables success in this area. Thank you very much. You know, we're looking forward to Amaryllis being recognized as this platform that large organizations, these large grocery chains that say, yeah, I'm going to go endless aisle. I'm going to improve online order. I'm going to do this, but I need this tool set to help me reconcile all this movement. They were, they were the first platform of choice in the company they're going to look for. So for that, thank you very much. Enjoyed uh, the conversation with you today, Tyler. Absolutely. Well, I enjoyed it as well. And uh, all our listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the podcast. We're going to be back soon with more episodes. But until then, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to look in the previous episodes and to stay up to date with everything going on in the retail landscape. I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening. We will talk again soon. 